Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started. I know there's still some folks coming in, but we'll get going. It's kind of been strange after a couple weeks off. I missed a week. Uh, we all missed last week. But uh, we're back to talking about uh, straight talk for modern Christians. The book of Ephesians, Paul tackles a lot of really difficult issues, and I think many of them are at least as difficult today as they were in Paul's time. Just a reminder, number to text questions to during class and be happy to answer as many questions as we can. Tonight, what I'd like to do is really primarily, we're gonna look at a piece of text, but this text addresses two, what I think are compelling modern questions. Two questions, number one, is it wrong for us to have so many denominations? I mean, is that a failure of the church, is that wrong? And then the second question that I suspect you get, in one form or another is asked quite a bit, and that is, we all worship the same God. Why can we not be unified if we would just love each other like Christ told us to love each other? Is it that simple? Can we just love each other and then we will all be unified? So we're going to focus on answering those two questions. And so by the end of the, of the lesson, I think we'll have the groundwork laid to answer those two questions. Is it wrong to have denominations? And if we'll just love each other like Jesus said, would that result in Christian unity, okay? Well, let's open the, up with the first uh, few verses of Ephesians chapter four. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, I'm gonna put the key passages up here. Give you a, trying out a new translation on you uh, at this time, mainly just to familiarize you with it. I usually use the NIV for teaching because that's what most people have, the New International Version, and it's a fine uh, version but the uh, new English translation is relatively recent. It's not very many years old. It's a little bit more literal, and uh, I think you, you might like it. It also has the advantage of being free online. I mean, you can just simply get this for free. So we're gonna use the NET tonight, mainly just to familiarize you with it. It doesn't just happen to say what I need it to say. I hate that, you know, you get in, I got 15 different translations here because I've been trying to get someone that says what I want to say. We're just going to use the NAT because I think you'll enjoy it as we go through. Paul begins, he says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit uh, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So in this passage, the first thing you observe is that the idea of unity is the plan for the church. You have one Lord, one baptism, one faith. You're all called in one hope of your calling. Unity is the plan for the church. The second thing I want to point out are just a couple of little things that will lead into an important point. The first is, is that he starts this off with therefore. And you've probably all heard the old saying that when you see a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. And the, it's there in this case because Paul is saying, based on everything I've said before this, I want to make some application. In fact, the last part of this series is all going to be application. The beginning, if you remember, there were two really big ideas in the first couple of chapters. The first, remember this passage out of uh, Ephesians chapter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight according to the good pleasure of his will. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as children into his family. And so you see this idea of election and adoption and then God unilaterally loving us and selecting us. Then in Ephesians chapter 2, you have that famous passage, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, not by works, so that anybody can boast that I did this myself, but it's grace that saves us. So you see God's sovereign choosing of us and then God's grace that permits us to be saved. And so he says, therefore, given that that's true, I'd like for you to live in a manner worthy of your calling. And in fact, that's going to be the reason that Paul uses for all the Christian conduct. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk about gender roles. What does the Bible say about it? And is our culture right? Is the Bible right? How do we as Christians uh, merge that together? We're going to talk about social justice. Where should Christians be on a lot of the social justice issues of the day? We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Is Satan real? Is he, what's he doing in the world? Uh, are there demons and demon possession? In other words, Paul's going to tackle a lot of subjects that are still very relevant. The basis for tackling all these is going to be, since in light of what God has done, here then is our mandate. And the first mandate is to live in a manner worthy of your calling. Second point I'd like to make. Paul doesn't say, and you sometimes will hear Christians say this, but Paul's got a much stronger thing, is that, well, God's been so good to us, out of gratitude, we ought to do what he says. Okay, that's about as wimpy as it gets uh, in turn, and Paul is not a wimp. Paul says instead, in light of what God has done, you need to live up to your calling. Now, a calling, I want you to think of a calling, and that word is very, that word's used four times, by the way. In this, it's a little play on the Greek word there. It's used several times right in this passage. Is that a calling is not optional. My heart burned with, God's been so good to us, gee, shouldn't we have a warm, fuzzy feeling and do what he says? It makes it so optional. Think of a calling like a jury summons. Anybody been summoned to sit on a jury? You know, this is a true story. I worked in uh, business in Oklahoma City for 28 years, never called for jury duty. Start to work at the church, boom, immediately. I don't know what that says, but immediately get called. Well, let me put it to you this way. If any of you have been through that process, this is not a suggestion. They will come pick you up. If you don't show up, you know, this is not a, hey, don't you want to be a good citizen and show up for a jury duty? Let me tell you the answer to that. No, no one does. It's a, in other words, you were called to jury duty. It is not optional. That's the kind of language Paul uses here. He says, no, you don't understand. In light of what God has done, you strive to live up to the calling. It's not an optional uh, thing. I'll give you a, another passage here where he kind of talks about this a little bit. He says, you were taught with reference to your former way of life. I mean, this is how, this is what he means when he talks about living up to the calling. Lay aside or put off the old person who's being corrupted 
in accordance with deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on a new person who's been created in God's image. It's like a total makeover. You ever seen those shows where they come in and they take this dilapidated house and in a ridiculous period, has anyone ever seen a contractor work that fast? That's just not real life, I'm sorry. You may call it reality TV, that is not reality. You ever try to get a painter to finish a job in that period of time? No, it doesn't work. But my point is, this is like a total makeover. When he says live in a manner worthy of your calling, what he says, put off the old person, renew your mind and put on a new person. Let me tell you what he says back in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 6, he asks an interesting question. Chapter 6 is a beautiful chapter, profound chapter of Romans. Should we, can we go on sinning? I mean, God's already done all this stuff for us, so why don't we just go on sinning? Paul says, let me give you a loose translation. You idiot. No, actually, it says, by no means. We died to sin. How can we possibly live in sin any longer? I mean, how can we possibly do that? Don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism. See the same language here? We're going to put off the old person, put on the new person. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a, a, a new life. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our sin is also done away with. So you get this idea of, well, what does it mean then to live in a manner worthy of our calling? He says nothing short of total death of the old person. We talked in our uh, Good Friday services here, the passage, if anyone would come after me, remember Jesus saying this, if anybody wants a part of me, what do you, what do you have to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? I, we really didn't talk about that on Good Friday, and this is a good chance to expand. Let me tell you what it means to take up your cross. You must crucify the old person. You must die to yourself. We must die to the person who lived in sin, and a new person is raised up. That's what this means that says, urge you to live worthy of the calling in which you've been called. And a little bit later, he's going to say, I insist that this is what you do. So the idea here of living in a manner worthy of our calling, it's not an option, and the idea of transformation. The reason that I say this is, it's, it's going to become really apparent. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means to be transformed in the process of being transformed, to put off the old person, put on a new person. Transformation is key to this idea of unity. When the Bible talks about us as a church being unified, us as believers, it assumes that we are believers. We will never be unified with unbelievers. We should never expect to be unified with people who are not followers of Christ. They, you'll see in a minute that Paul characterizes them as being living in the futility of their thinking. We are not that person anymore. We don't expect unity with unbelievers. When the Bible talks about unity among followers of Christ, it's talking about this person, putting off the old person, putting on the new. Transformation is the key to unity because it is not, unity is not the natural state of humanity. I mean, think back as far and as much history as you know, what is the one thing that's been constant? Strife, war, battle. 
us and them, insiders, outsiders, hostility, disunity. We are not by nature, being the selfish little creatures that we are, going to be naturally unified. We are, in fact, going to have naturally have divisions. It's going to take a transformation to, to change our, quote, nature, human nature. We literally have to put to death who we naturally are. We are natural little narcissists, aren't we? It's self-centeredness is the rule of our life. So transformation is the key to unity, and it is not optional. Paul says this calling to put off the old person, put on the new, is not an option. And so what does that look like? He says here, bearing with one another in love. That's not natural, but we're going to bear, we're going to put up with each other. We're going to forgive, we're going to be gracious. You know, it's later going to say forgiving each other at the end of this chapter, as Christ forgave you. Every time I do a wedding, that's one of the key things is, listen, I know you think right now that you're starry-eyed in love and they'll, your spouse will never do anything wrong, and that will last until Tuesday. And then you will realize the need to forgive each other as we have been forgiven. Make sense? So he says, bearing with one another in love and making every effort to keep unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, let's talk briefly, touch the first question. Why are there so many denominations? This is not a chart of all the denominations. It's not even close. This is just some of the big families. And I just want to highlight, before we go on in the text, some of the reasons that we have denominations. Why would we have these differences and this disunity in the church? This chart starts with the Roman Catholic Church, and it became estranged from Eastern Orthodoxy very early because of some political things, actually, that happened, the fall of the Roman Empire. The Roman, half the Roman Empire fell and cut the Eastern and Roman Church off, and they developed independently. And then... You have power struggles. Now, when things get unified, it's like, we got a pope. Oh, yeah, we got a pope. Yeah, well, why don't you take our pope? Why don't you take our pope? You know, in other words, you get some human elements in, right? Then fast forward another few hundred years to the Protestant Reformation. Everybody else on the bottom of that chart is a Protestant, and they protested against the Catholic Church. That reason for that denominational split was over the issue of truth. In other words, the doctrine of the Catholic Church was that you are saved not only by grace, but there are also works in this process. I mean, you've got the whole idea of uh, penance. Uh, you've got the idea of uh, works, a works-based structure. Well, the Reformers said, no, it's faith and faith alone that saves us. We're saved by grace through faith. That's it, period. And so all the Protestant ideas, the protesters, protested against that on the basis of scriptural authority. There's a fundamental difference in the way, and I'm not harping on the Catholic Church here, I'm making the point about what was the reason for this huge split that resulted in many, many, many denominations. It was over an issue of perceived what is true, what is the nature of salvation. Catholic Church, traditional doctrine in the Catholic Church is that church, the church supersedes the scripture. I'm shortcutting this a little bit, making this slightly inaccurate, but fundamentally that the church supersedes the scripture. Protestant idea is that no, the scripture dictates 
to the church, this revelation of God's will is not superseded by any one of us or any group of us that get together and vote and say, oh, actually, we're not going to do that part of it. It was their view of what the importance of the scripture led to a break over a, an issue of truth. And sometimes denominational splits are over issues of truth. Uh, the other reason, and you'll tend to see this a lot, particularly now, is not quite so noble as a break over truth. I mean, everything gets cloaked in a break over truth, but they're not so noble. We tend to see more breaks in recent times over what I'm gonna call consumer issues. Consumer issues. What meets my needs? The, the reason churches split used to be do, doctrinal more than uh, consumer type things, but now if you think about why do you choose the church you choose, sometimes it's who, who speaks truth. And I think that's important. I'm not saying it's not, but a lot of times when you talk to people, what will come out of their mouth is, well, this church meets our needs better. This church is more convenient for me. This is for me. I'm not necessarily telling you that that can't be a factor. I'm just saying that a lot of what you'll see now as splits in denomination have more to do with consumer factors than they do with huge issues of truth. Does that make sense? But as far as the reason for those splits amongst, if you assume that there are indeed followers of Christ in there who are striving toward unity, sometimes there are substantive issues of truth, particularly around the view of Scripture. Some of the logos I put on your handout, and I just chose those by no means all of them, some of those splits on those logos are over very fundamental issues about the truth of God's revelation versus what our culture says. You will definitely see that, but you also see a lot of preference-based splits as well, consumer-type splits, and you have both of those things working in the why we have so many denominations. It's a long story, but I would distill it down to those. By the way, one of the logos on that sheet is the logo for the organization Crossings is affiliated with. This has nothing to do with the lesson, but you probably just don't know this, is the Church of God Anderson, Indiana is the organization movement with which this congregation is affiliated. And you'll notice them on the right side of the green. See that Church of God Indiana? We are a branch off the holiness movement out of the Protestant Reformation. That's when I say we, I, this isn't my tradition, didn't grow up here, but this is Crossing's tradition, and that's where it comes from. I should tell you that as an extra bonus. So you can amuse your friends by saying, hey, I bet you don't know who Crossing's is affiliated with. No, really don't. Uh, and by the way, there are 34 different groups that identify themselves by the name of Church of God and some of them handle snakes. So please say Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. I'm joking about that. Oh, actually, that's true. I'm just not trying to be offensive to anybody, but there are 34 different Church of God distinct organizations. So we have so many denominations, we can't even think of unique names. All right, so it is an issue. Well, let's go on and let's talk then about what does Paul go on then to say? The next passage, he said, unity is the plan for the church, and it assumes that we are striving to live up to the calling, the non-optional calling to which we've gotten, which means death of the old person, putting on a new person, being renewed in Christ. We think differently, we act differently, we begin to feel differently, we begin to be transformed over time. That 
Unity is our trajectory, though. Even though we don't get unity day one, you don't become a Christian and say, okay, I'm just united with every other Christian. Well, for one thing, I don't know enough. You know, I became a Christian, they handed me a little book about, okay, here's what we believe. It's like, I'm glad you told me. You know, I've read the Bible before, but I'm not sure I could sit down and list and say what is distinctive about being a follower of Christ. So it doesn't happen day one. Paul says that's true. He says, to each of us, grace was giving according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? He equipped people in the church. Why? To help us be unified. And how's that going to happen? To equip the saints, that's us, the holy ones, the set-apart people, the new people, for the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's an interesting little Greek word, by the way. That word equip is also used in other Greek sources to talk about furnishing a house. So think about it. you buy a house, got no furniture in it, and that's kind of us as Christians, isn't it? Well, we're a new house, so what do we put in it? Right? I got no furniture in this house. That, this word is actually used in a secular sense to say, you're going to go furnish the new house. Well, that's what this is talking about. That's why one of the main reasons we come to class. That's why we have classes. That's why we do church. I mean, there are other reasons, but one of the big reasons is to equip each other. We're going to furnish this new person right, with all the right furniture and all the right wall hangings. In other words, we're going to decorate this house the way God wants it decorated, not the shabby shack that I moved out of, right, the old self. So equip the saints uh, for the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ so that we can attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, unity is our trajectory. God doesn't say day one, you instantly become a new person and you guys all agree on everything. You see everything right. He says, no, you become a new person and now let's furnish this new house. Let's get us on the trajectory of unity. The key idea here, that's a really important idea, is that if we want to grow closer to each other, if we want to be more unified, the answer is not the ecumenical movement. And that is, hey, let's just all say that we're going to, because we worship the same God, we're all going to get along. That's not Paul's answer. Paul's answer is, if you want to become more at one with each other, then get closer to Christ. Does that make sense? Think about that. As we all move towards Christ, we come closer together. Back here, there's no way for unity. Unity happens the closer we get to Christ. And you know what we call that process of growing closer with Christ, being equipped, being built up? We call that holiness. Sanctification is another theological term. In other words, I am being transformed into this new person. I am participating with the Holy Spirit, and I am all in. It's like, that old guy's dead. Not my will be done, but your will be done. Let's go. Who, do you, who are you going to make me? We come here and we get equipped in how to think and what we're going to do in the service. We have opportunities to serve. All this is not to cure world hunger. It's not to make the world a better place. It's for us to grow up. The acts of works that God has prepared in advance for us to do, that's in Ephesians 2, is here so that we can grow closer to Christ. As we do it, we all grow closer to each other. People who seek unity without 
holiness, and I don't mean by holiness perfection, I mean this pursuit of becoming more and more like Christ, are doomed to failure. Because the natural state of humanity is not unity, it's division. And the natural state of Christ-likeness is indeed unity. That makes sense? So a really key idea is on the first part, unity is the plan for the church. And the key to that is to live up to our calling, which requires transformation. But Paul says, I understand that is a path, a trajectory you're on. It's not a, you immediately become completely new. That path heads towards Christ. So if we want to pursue unity, we will pursue Christ. And the closer we get to Christ, the, the more unified we are in, in the way we see the world, in the way we think, in the way we understand truth, in what we do and who we are. Okay? So key second idea here is this idea of growing closer to each other, that unity is our trajectory. Questions? I know I'm going a little fast, so you probably haven't time to think of them. All right. Unity is our goal. Transformation is the method. Our trajectory is toward unity, but that requires holiness, the pursuit of Christ-likeness. You see, we've gone way, way beyond this whole optional. I prayed a prayer. I'm a Christian now. wonder why we don't all get along. I mean, I, I make this point seriously. Do you see how it is insane to think that that is going to lead to unity? That's not what Paul's talking about. It's going to require transformation. Well, let's talk then about what are the things that hinder our unity. Paul says this. He goes on, and he's going to talk about this idea. He says, so we are no longer, we're just moving right through this text, children, immature. You get the idea of immaturity here? We are no longer children tossed back and forth by the waves, carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. But practicing the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. He says, actually, our natural state is kind of like children. We kind of get tossed about by the wind and the waves of teaching. We move one way and the other. What he says is, is that you know one of the reasons that stands in the way of us having unity is teaching that has something other than truth as its motive. A lot of false teaching teaching that does, has something other than truth as its motive. There are a lot of people out there teaching a lot of things uh, from social agendas to ideology to compromises with the culture to uh, this is frankly a good way to get rich. Uh, it's a great way to develop a following. All the things of untransformed humanity, power, greed, self-centeredness, come into the church. We all come in with that old man and if we stay with that old man, you will see all those behaviors, and you do in that myriad of denominations. It is unreasonable to expect anything other than major numbers of, of denominations if indeed that's what's happening. And Paul says, I want you to no longer be like children who are tossed about by the waves, that when you hear teaching that is not based on the truth, you are mature enough, you are wise enough to not follow that down the road. The other reason is this. 
He goes on a little bit further and he says this, so I say this and I insist on it. You no longer live as the Gentiles do, the old person, as you used to in the futility of your thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts, the self-centeredness. Because they are callous, they've given themselves over to indecency for the practice of every kind of impurity with a greediness. In other words, I want more, more, more of impurity. He says, you may no longer live like that. You may no longer think like that. So one reason is teaching, that we're not discerning enough to understand what is truth, what is based on the truth. The other reason is a lack of critical thinking. In other words, do we view the world that way? In other words, do we seek the truth? The old man doesn't seek the truth. The old man seeks my advantage. You know, if you've ever been in a deal, I have a saying in dealing with people is, and I don't mean to be cynical, I've just found it to be very valuable, is expect people to be who they are. And you will rarely be disappointed. And so if you are dealing with someone who is this person who thinks about the world in a very selfish way, you should expect them to behave in selfish ways. You may call them to a higher purpose, but you should expect people who think and live in a self-centered world, in this futility of their thinking, to behave in a very consistent way with that. And that's what Paul's talking about. He said that's a real hindrance to unity. This idea of thinking about truth is, uh, in our culture, has undergone a massive shift. We live in what's called a postmodern culture, and all that really means is we think about truth differently. In our culture, and we are influenced by this, our culture says that there is no one truth that's true for everyone. In fact, that's an oppressive idea. In fact, truth is what works for me. You notice how me-centered it is. Christians understand that thy word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What did Pontius Pilate say? What is truth? Jesus said, actually, I am truth. That's a huge difference in thinking. You think, new creature, there is truth, and it is every worth that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus Christ is truth. This revelation is truth. The culture in which we live says, no, that's not true. True is whatever works for me. And let me tell you what that devolves to. I'll tell you what truth amounts to in our culture. Our truth, our culture has replaced truth with sincerity. If you are sincere, then you are true. I want you to think about that and watch what you see on TV you're going to see the idea of sincerity has replaced truth. If there's no one thing that's true, then how do you decide? Sincerity. For example, here's a great example in the religious world. This is true everywhere, by the way. In fact, studies have shown that the more passionately you speak to a group of people, even if you are uttering nonsense, I mean nonsense, the more passionately you speak, the more you are perceived as telling the truth. Because our culture interprets sincerity as truth. Here's how it plays itself out in religious world. Here's one of the ways. You've heard this before. Look, aren't sincere Muslims going to go to heaven? 
What about sincere Buddha? What about people that sincerely believe that this is the truth? How can they not go to heaven? What have they, what's that basically saying? Now, if you're insincere, fine, you can go on to hell. But if you're sincere, you should be able to go to heaven. What's that saying? Is that there's no absolute truth to measure it by, but that sincerity must be rewarded. That's a postmodern idea. That's a cultural idea, that truth is measured by the sincerity of our views, not by any particular standard of our views. By the way, this is a side comment. You don't have to pay anything extra for this. Make a political comment, not a partisan comment, a political comment. You know what that ideology looks like when it goes into the political world? And again, this isn't a party issue, but the idea, the postmodern idea that there is no one truth Truth is measured by something other than some standard, whatever your standard may be, even if it's not God, that truth is a matter of sincerity, truth is a matter of your particular ideology. Let me tell you what that looks like in politics. It looks like the emperor has no clothes on. You guys know that story where they come in and they make a new set of clothes for the emperor, and they say, oh, this is really going to be gorgeous, and the advisors are all like, dude, you're naked. You know, these are imaginary clothes. Oh, no, but everybody believes that, oh, no, I can't say anything, that's, that's got to be good. In other words, you end up with economic and political ideas that are like the emperor with no clothes. It's like, this makes no sense. Well, it does to the emperor. Why? Because he's sincere. Because she has this ideology of this is how my world needs to work. I'll give you a great example of that. Uh, people who think... All human beings are basically good at heart. If you just give them the right chance, they'll do the right thing. Bible says, give that a try and let me know how it works out for you. Because this is a fallen world, we are fallen people. We are not going to inherently behave well. But if that's my ideology and that's my truth, can you imagine what my international politics might look like? Again, I make no criticism of this, I'm just saying that idea invades every aspect of our life. Religiously, that's what it looks like. In politics, this is what it looks like. And it doesn't work out very well. God says, actually, there is truth. I made you. I know how this works. I saw you fall, and I died so that I could redeem you, so that you could be the new person. And I'll just tell you, here's the deal. I, I am the truth. I have the truth. Make sense? That is a key idea, and it's one of the huge barriers. How can you and I be unified if we have completely different truths? Does that make sense? There's no way, there's no basis. Look at the world today. Do you think the likelihood of us hugging and kissing Vladimir Putin and oh, you're just a good old guy and we're going to get along really well? I mean, I'm using a secular example, but what do you think the odds of this happening are? Yeah, if you said zero, that's the Vegas line. That's not going to happen. Why is that not going to happen? we got two different views of the truth. That's what it's like with Christians, too, who are not unified in what we're going to. There's no reason to expect that we would ever have unity. I want what I want. Unfortunately, you guys all seem to want what you want and won't see reason, right? You, you just won't seem to realize it's all about Terry. You think it's all about you. In that world... Will there ever be unity? No, there won't. When you see those ideas in the church, 
you should reasonably expect to see what we see today, and that is a great deal of disunity. You should expect that in any organization like that. Okay? So what are the hindrances to unity? What stops that trajectory? One of the key ways is this idea of not acknowledging truth, which you would assume would be one of at least the fundamental aspects for Christians. Well, I want to answer those two questions now that we've laid the groundwork, but before I do, what questions do we have? I have a couple of questions, but my network's not working very well, so if I don't have all the questions, I'm sorry, send them to me again. I've um, noticed that the network providers have a different view of truth than I have as well. Apparently. Um, okay. The first question is, should sermons focus more on the black words in the Bible or the red words in the Bible if we're looking for truth? That's a good question. Should sermons focus more on the red or the black words in the Bible? Meaning, Jesus' words versus the disciples' words. To split those two apart, by the way, is kind of a popular movement right now. It's called the red letter movement. It's like, hey, this is, this is a version of the question I'm going to answer, answer in just a minute of, why can't we just all love each other and gather around Jesus' teaching? This is an exact uh, example of that. To split those two apart is a fatal flaw because it assumes that Jesus had a vision of what he was about and what he was doing, and the 12 guys that followed him for three years had their own ideas, and those two are not consistent. Right? The only reason that you would split those two apart is if you assume they're not consistent. The problem is Jesus didn't think that. He said to those disciples, the Holy Spirit, Jesus was not about telling you everything that needed to be told. Jesus was specifically focused on ushering in the kingdom. That's what he preached. That's what he said. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. Dies on the cross, raised, and says, it's finished. The kingdom is now here. The old covenant is done. All right? He says to them, the Holy Spirit's going to come and remind you of everything that I have said and lead you into all truth. Now go equip the saints. In other words, we understand this is the revelation of God, not just what Jesus said, and he had 12 morons who somehow went out and wrote the stuff that, that is inconsistent. Okay? So splitting those two is, leaves you with an artificial idea of what's been revealed. So we need to take the Bible in its totality, and specifically in this case the New Testament. I'd argue the whole Bible, but for the purpose of this discussion, Jesus or Paul, Jesus or Peter, Jesus or James. In fact, it's all quite harmonious, and we need to see it to, together. That's always been the church's view of inspiration in the scriptures. It appears very strongly to be Jesus' idea of that. In other words, he understood that what you guys are going to go out and preach is exactly what I want you to go out and preach. So, good question. There's, that's an interesting movement, and it is one of the examples of the idea of, let's take this down to a basic, basic common denominator that we can all work with. A lot of problems with that. The chief problem being, the question I'll answer in just a minute is, well, if we just love each other, won't it all work out in the end? Question? What negative perceptions of the church do we typically take on if we are not walking out our calling? Well, I think that, first of all, perception, we will, if we are doing our job right, we had better be offensive to the culture around us. 
I don't mean by that that we need to be perceived as, oh, you're judgmental, you're haters, you're awful, etc. That's not my point. Perception isn't the guiding factor. The question is, what will we be doing in the world? And one thing is, well, probably squabbling with each other all the time is not number one on the list, right? So if we're walking it out the way we're supposed to, do not kid yourself. The world is not going to love you. What did Jesus say? Let's assume Jesus walked it out well. We're going to all go there? I'm going to make the assumption Jesus walked this life out perfectly. And what did he say? The world hates me. It's going to hate you. That's one of those red-letter things that we don't talk about very much. So perception of the world is not the governing of our conduct. It's living up to the truth. And one of the things, by the way, that does divide us, I'm glad that question came in, one of the reasons we divide is sometimes Christians want to be liked by the world. That's not a scriptural idea. Now, on the flip side, there is no reason for us to go and beat everybody over the head with our Bible and be completely hated and to truly be total judgmental jerks. I mean, that's, these are both sides that we're going to talk about in a second. We're not called to either one of those, but if we walk it out the way it's supposed to, we bring truth into the world. And some people will hear that and respond, and some people will hate you for it. That's what happened with Jesus. That should be what happens with us. Well, since you brought up judgment, we have a question that says, somebody in a religion that doesn't truly follow Christianity, will they go to heaven? Well, people... Well, I'll just, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says because I don't decide who goes to heaven or not. And I'm not trying to be uh, cute when I say that. I mean that very sincerely. But I'll tell you what the Bible says is that without Christ, there is no hope. Does that make sense? I mean, that's what God says is without Christ, there is no hope. Draw your own conclusions. I can't tell you, that guy's going to heaven, that guy's not. I don't see the hearts of people, but I do know what God says is that without Christ, there is no hope. That old man, that old person, is doomed by a fatal disease called sin. And the only hope of eternity is to crucify the old man, as the scripture says, put on the new person, not my will, but thine be done. I'm going to follow you. Jesus said it this way. Here's what you need to do. Trust me, follow me. That's the message of Jesus. That's what he told people to do. Was there more to say? Yeah, there's a lot more to say. Paul's saying some of it here tonight. Let me, let me flesh out what that looks like, but that's what Jesus said. So the scripture says the only way, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the only way to the Father, and that is trust me, follow me. So that's as good an answer realistically as I can give as opposed to, well, those guys are going to hell, those guys are going to heaven. That's not my place to judge, but God has made it clear for us about judgment. And that's one of those truths that is not popular. But if it's truth, then we'll stand up for it. If my truth is my truth, if I was going to create my own God, I might take that part out because I don't want my neighbor to be mad at me. And sometimes you see that happen as people want to accommodate that. And I understand the compassion but the real compassionate act is go reach the world for Christ. That's what he told us to do is go tell everyone you have a terminal disease called sin and there is the hope of eternal life. That's the good news. Okay? Well, let's get to this question. Can love unite us? Can love unite us? 
It goes like this. We all believe in the same God. If we will love each other, Jesus said, everyone will know you're my disciples by the fact that you love one another. If we'll just love each other, can we not then be united? If we'll just live up to that one thing that Jesus said. Here's the dichotomy that that assumes. It assumes a dichotomy between love and truth. We are in a, on the tail end of a pendulum swing. The pendulum back in the middle of the 20th century in America was on the truth side. You didn't have as many denominations, and you still had a problem, but you, we were heavy on truth, and it's like, hey, sit still for a second, let me tell you, uh, have you ever smelled hellfire and brimstone? Well, come into my church, I'm gonna tell you about it every Sunday. In other words, we beat people over the head with truth. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but truth. So the pendulum swings, right? And you get massive changes in Christianity through the latter part of the 20th century to grace and love. I don't know how many of you grew up in a church that was a reaction to this, the guilt, 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 to the grace, grace, grace. And you move from truth to love. And all we're ever going to talk about is how much Jesus loves you and how much God loves you. And that is true. It just doesn't happen to be all of the truth. And so we had this big pendulum swing over here. And so the troubles that we had 100 years ago were issues around people being offended by the way we brought the truth, and, and rightfully so in many cases. Problems we have today are the blurring of all the margins around love. Well, if God's a loving God, surely he wouldn't let bad things happen. If God's a loving God, surely he'd be okay with my sin. That's effectively what you say. You see what I'm saying? You have a different set of problems. It's because we operate under the assumption that you have to be one or the other. It's truth or it's love. God's got to pick his side. The fact of the matter is, that is a false dichotomy. Look at Jesus. Jesus was all about the truth. He was so about the truth. I mean, stop and think about this. This idea of Jesus is love and we're all just going to have a big old group hug. Maybe we'll sing Kumbaya around the campfire when we're through and that's what Jesus is all about. Man, you, you have, cannot read very much of the New Testament. Jesus offended people all the time. Jesus was not offensive, and therein lies our mistake. He wasn't offensive. He just offended people with the truth. So much so, they tried to kill him a bunch, and eventually did. Not only were the religious people of the time offended by him, so were all the secular people of the time. Who ends up crucifying Jesus? Everybody in power, religious, non-religious. You see what I'm saying? Jesus offended people because the truth offends people. The world hates me, it's going to hate you. All right? If we were of this world, it would love us because we'd be on, in our own. He says, but that's not the case. Truth is going to offend the world, but we do not have to be offensive about it. Jesus was also incredibly loving in that Jesus hung out with the sinners. I mean, you know this part of the story. We preach that story all the time. hundred years ago, we preached one and not the other. But really, we're very familiar with that because that's the pendulum side. You know all the loving things Jesus did, but if you watch what Jesus does, woman at the well, woman caught in adultery, uh, you see it with the Jewish leaders, with Nicodemus, with everybody. He tells the truth and he loves them. Does that make sense? If you, if you think there's a dichotomy between truth and love, and we set that up, we got to 
my God's a God of love. Well, no, actually, my God's a God of truth. There's really going to be a judgment. And the answer is, yeah, that's right. It's both. He is a loving God who will tell us the truth. So that's why love alone will not unite us. It will not unite us. Love without truth cannot unite us. And truth without love will not unite us. Because both are a little one-dimensional piece of what Christianity is about. As we move towards Christ-likeness, we're told to forgive people who don't deserve forgiveness. We're told to be compassionate to people who don't deserve compassion. We're told to feed and heal a world who we owe them nothing. In other words, we're going to be loving no matter who you are. And we are going to take the truth unapologetically that do you realize that you are doomed and you need this Jesus. I want to introduce you to him. Truth and love together. This idea of let's just all love one another is not sufficient. It has not worked, it will not work. And the idea is that, all right, if we'll all just rigidly believe exactly the same thing, that won't work either. We have to understand that we can't split Jesus in truth. And we can't take the truth or the love, it's gotta be both. Right now, the predisposition is love, 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 grace, 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 grace. Let's just not worry too much about the truth. In times past, it's been, eh, let's not worry about the love. We've got to make sure everybody knows they're wrong first. Does that resonate with you? And you can see both of those are very misguided. Neither one of those has led to unity. Unity comes from truth and love working together. So no, this simplistic idea, why don't we just all love each other and give a big group hug and get along? Give it a try. Hasn't worked, not going to work because it's not God's truth. Okay? Second question. Is it wrong to have so many denominations? Here's an interesting passage. Jesus, right before uh, he's crucified, says this prayer. He's praying for his disciples, the 12, and he said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you've sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. It's not red letter, black letter. It's like, hey, I'm sending them with my message. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be sanctified, holy. Sanctification, holiness, same thing. I'm holy, you're going to be holy. That is your trajectory, remember? See how this fits together? This is the consistent message of, of Christ. He says, but my prayer is not for them alone, just the 12. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Where does Jesus seem to think unity comes from? Dwelling with him and the Father. Can I do that from way over here? Like, yeah, you've got your truth, but I think I want to hold on to my truth. And God, you're not the kind of God I want, so I think I'm going to do it this way. By the way, all my neighbors think that this is okay, so you're going to have to get over that sin. There's no, nothing unifying there. He says, they can be part of us. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. That's a beautiful little phrase. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. That's a powerful prayer of Jesus for us for unity. Unity is the plan for the church. 
Unity requires transformation. Actually, following Christ requires transformation. Anything short of that, we shouldn't even believe that we could achieve unity. The transformation, that it is our trajectory. The closer we get to Christ, the closer we get to each other. And this idea of uh, this false dichotomy, the idea if we'll just focus on one thing, loving each other, we'll be unified. That's not true, has not been true, isn't likely to be true. We must completely dwell in Christ, the closer we get to Christ. So, is it wrong for us to have denominations? Of course it is. Absolutely it is. Except where we hold on to truth. In other words, should we embrace untruth for the sake of unity? God forbid. Jesus didn't do that, right? Should we then be unloving to those who are untruth? God forbid. Jesus didn't do that either. But to the extent that we are not unified, it is a reflection of our, and I'm painting with the big picture here, our Christians in the world, immaturity. That we are not yet closely enough following Christ. Maybe we've gotten off the path because we've ditched truth in some form or another. Maybe we've gotten off the path because we've ditched love in one form or another. Maybe we've gotten off the path and decided, whoa, no longer thy will be done. I kind of actually need some of my will to be done. Do you see how all of those are failures to follow Christ? And we do all fail, but when we get off that road, we tend to fragment. And the fact that we are as fragmented as we are is an indication of our immaturity in being built up into Christ. So what is the cure for that? Well, duh, the obvious one is, is that we actually go follow Christ. But in a more constructive sense, we must talk about truth. We must teach truth as a unifying force, because anything else will never unify us. We will never be unified around, well, you've got your truth and I've got mine. And we must be loving to one another. Have you ever been in one of those situations, men, where you have an argument with your wife and you are right, of course, I mean, you're right, and you realize that you have won the battle and you have really lost the war. I don't, can't tell you how many times this happened to me before I realized, you know, maybe there's more to life, maybe there's more to a marriage than trying to be right all the time. Now, does that mean truth doesn't matter? No, but what does it mean? Truth in love. Exactly the way Paul talks about it. He says, but we will go speak the truth in love. That's the combination that we're called to. The, the antidote for our disunity is, in essence, for us to move closer to Christ. Holiness, sanctification, get on that path. But what do we together do for each other? We must preach truth, even when it's offensive. We must love love, love, so that there is no sense of superiority or judgmentalism. Does that make sense? I know that sounds simplistic. It's like, go be like Jesus. Go tell the truth in love. We've tended to kind of want a pendulum swing on that. Let's find that balance. Let's share truth, study truth, speak truth, and let's do it in a way that there can be no doubt whatsoever that I care for you. That makes sense? 
I hope that doesn't sound like a you know, Pollyanna-type solution. I think that is the example given to us. The things that fail are taking one of these and not the other, or just simply, I'm not going that way anymore. It's going to be about me. At that point, we, we fail. So yes, denominations are a sign of, quote, our collective immaturity. And the solution to that is, let's grow up, as Paul said, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay? So what are we going to do with that? Spend some time in the Word. Put truth in here. Speak truth. Become closer and closer to Christ and love like Christ loved. We tend to sometimes think that, well, if I love you, then people are going to think I approve of you. You notice, quit worrying about that so much. Sometimes we want to say, look, I'm willing to love you, but first I have a disclaimer. What you are doing is wrong. You're actually an evil person. God doesn't approve of that. You're probably going to hell, and I just want to make sure you know that. Now, I'm perfectly willing to embrace you and love you, all right? And the other flip side is, I don't care what you're doing. God doesn't care what you're doing. Hey, man, you're fine. I just love, 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 love you to death. Neither one of those is Jesus. Go spend some time with Jesus. Speak the truth and speak it in a way that acts love. That's your assignment this week. And I expect some of these denominations to be gone by next Wednesday. All right? Okay, well, thank you guys. Next week, we'll tackle a thorny little issue about gender roles. Is Christianity compatible with cultural ideas? And if not, why not and how so? Paul is not going to shrink from talking about something that's potentially explosive next week. I will be wearing a Teflon bulletproof vest. You guys come and we'll talk about it. Thanks.